Hello! You are listening to the East London History Show with me, Elena Guthrie, where every week we explore something fascinating about this little corner of London. Whether it's a person, a road, an event, a building, anything. And this week, I promise you, I haven't let you down. It's another super interesting topic. I mean, I think so at least, and obviously I'm not biased. This week, we're on Curtain Road in Shoreditch. Today, if you were stood on Curtain Road, it's an incredibly built-up part of Shoreditch, neighbouring Old Street, Liverpool Street and the city. You might see the Queen of Hoxton Club, the Horse and Groom Pub, which I'll come back to, the NSPCC building, the Curtain Hotel, a Pizza Express, basically lots and lots of buildings. But stand on the same road 400 years ago and you would see a very different road. A very different Shoreditch, really. The year is around 1577. Queen Elizabeth I is the monarch and this area of East London, Shoreditch, Hackney, it isn't really part of London. It's historical Middlesex. It's outside the city walls, which means it's basically the countryside. The area isn't really built up, not by today's standards. And if you were to look around, you would mostly see marshland, manors and fields. Think lots of people on horses, maybe they're transporting goods or they're from the army, farmers moving their livestock, most likely the odd drunk. St. Leonard's Church would probably be there or I think it's first iteration. You might recognise some alleys and lanes like Plough Yard and Fairchild Place around the Crown and Shuttle Pub and Goose Island Pub, they're still there. It also probably wouldn't smell great. You know, no proper sanitation or plumbing at the time. And roughly at the site of the Horse and Groom pub, you would see a playhouse. In fact, one of the first playhouses in London. The Curtain Playhouse. Today, it's located three metres below modern-day ground level. Since built upon by Victoriana, Empire and Industry... It's been turned into tenements, a pub, and eventually the site of offices. But back then, it was one of the first permanent public theatrical venues since the Romans left London. Forget the theatre land of Shaftesbury Avenue and Drury Lane, even the South Bank. This is the original theatre land, where Shakespeare premiered Henry V and Romeo and Juliet, where Ben Jonson cast Shakespeare in Every Man in His Humour, where theatre became something not just performed in the homes of rich people, but became accessible, democratised, where performers finally had a permanent space to push the boundaries of stage management and effects. And it all happened in this little corner of East London. Outside, away from the high street, to the east and the west, there was much more open land quite marshy, damp land created by the streams of the Walbrook and the West and the Black Ditch and the East, land that was used by Londoners for recreation and for keeping animals. And it was that land that was becoming reclaimed and built on in the late 16th century. That's Adam Single, an archaeology advisor at Historic England who works specifically on the history of East London and is really the person you have to go through if you want to do any development. And it was where some of these early playhouses were first sighted. So we have the Curtain and we have its near neighbour, the theatre, built very close to one another in Shoreditch. And together 
they really are the first theatrical district, if you like, um, in, in Europe. Um, uh, people think that theatre perhaps began on, on the South Bank or at, at the West End, but no, it actually all began um, in East London. Uh, and it's really where a lot of the things that we expect when we go and see a play uh, today were uh, first formalised and where the, the, the theatre as a, as a sector, as an industry, uh, began. But why East London? Well, there's probably a few reasons. London experienced a massive population boom during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, and over the next 100 years, London's population doubled from around 100,000 to 200,000. It was the biggest and richest city in England at the time, and the people living here wanted to be entertained. And that equals money to be made. There was also something called the Vagabond Act of 1572 that declared all masterless men, including all fencers, bearwoods, common players of interludes, plays, and minstrels not belonging to any baron of this realm or to any other honourable person of greater degree, wandering abroad without the licence of two justices at the least, are subject to be grievously whipped and burned through the gristle of the right ear with a hot iron of the compass of an inch about. Ouch. This basically meant that actors had to come under the protection of rich people, like barons and earls, and if they weren't, they were considered vagabonds, lazy and useless, and they were generally rounded up and arrested, or clearly had a hot iron rod stuck in their ear. Uh, So yeah, not pleasant. And then in the same year, the Lord Mayor and Common Council of London banned all plays within their jurisdiction. But Shoreditch was outside London and therefore outside the jurisdiction of the Vagabond Act, meaning playhouses flourished in this area, and why the Curtain Playhouse is a scheduled monument today. Scheduled monuments are a legally protected form of archaeology, so Stonehenge, Dover Castle, uh, Westminster Abbey. These are uh, scheduled, legally protected for their national importance, and Elizabethan playhouses are nationally important. They're not quite as perhaps as, uh, as, as physically imposing and, uh, as, as something like the Tower of London, for example. But for their role in the development of English theatre, they are of incredibly high significance because they are the wellspring of so much of what we now expect from, from drama. And it meant that performers now had purpose-built venues. Once you build a playhouse, you can do so much more creatively than you could do if you're touring round appearing at impromptu venues. You can write your play to a set space. A playwright knows knows what he or she is dealing with. They can build special effects into their their productions much more easily. Trapdoors in the stage, pulleys and ropes in the rafters to haul people up and and lower them down. You've got places to store your props and your scenery and your costumes. You're not reliant on what your actors are willing to carry to the venue anymore. So you can write much more ambitious works. And there's this sudden huge explosion at the same time as the, play, the, um, the playhouses are built of new writing because there's this, suddenly a huge demand for material for actors to perform. If you're running a playhouse, you need to have it running, operating as often as possible for it to make, to, to make money. So you can't just keep showing the sort of occasional plays that people were used to up until that point. You've got an audience who are coming back regularly and are developing a very discerning sense of and taste and what they want to see and they want new material and they might want more experimental and interesting and ambitious material. So English drama suddenly takes off at this point because 
there is a supporting infrastructure for it at long last that allows playwrights and actors and producers to start doing much more interesting and innovative things. Now, if you didn't know about it, you're not alone. I only know about it because I started researching for the show. So I think it's fair to say, unless you have a particular affinity for Elizabethan playhouses or are a true Shakespeare stan and maybe wondered what the would know reference was in Henry V, you probably wouldn't know much about it either. And for good reason. It was hardly documented. People hint at it and they hint about where, where, where it is. But our best, I think, sources really are, are the plays themselves and the playbills. So we know, for example, from the advertising that Ben Johnson's play, Every Man in Its Humour, from the, the, the material that was produced around that, that we know that Shakespeare was actually acting at the curtain because we actually have the playbills from the site showing him in the, the cast. And it's the only playhouse where we know Shakespeare performed in an actual play for sure. He played sort of overbearing dad archetype uh, in this in this particular play. He's got a feckless son. He's trying to trying to improve his son's prospects. How happy yet should I esteem myself? Could I by any practice wean the boy from one vain course of study he affects? He is a scholar. If a man may trust the liberal voice of fame in her report, of good account in both our universities, either of which hath favoured him with graces, but their indulgence must not spring in me a fond opinion that he cannot err. Myself was once a student, and indeed fed with the self-same humour he is now, dreaming on naught but idle poetry, that fruitless and unprofitable art, good unto none but least to the professors, which then I thought was the mistress of all knowledge. But since time and the truth have waked my judgment, and reason taught me better to distinguish the vain from the useful learnings. So there's information in the plays from staging uh, instructions that we can actually look at and analyse and infer a lot about how the playhouse operated and compare that to the archaeology and see how it weighs up. In fact, one of the few mentions of it from the time comes from a letter Antimo Galli sent to Andrea Cioli, Secretary of State at Florence, about the exploits of Antonio Foscarini, Venetian ambassador to London between 1611 and 1615. And he was less than complimentary about it. He went the other day to a playhouse that was called The Curtain, a place as dubious as they come and where you would never see the face of a gentleman, let alone a nobleman. And what made it worse, so not to have to pay a sixpence, he chose not to go to one of the boxes, not even to be seated in one of the degrees they have, but preferred to be standing below in the middle, among the rabble of porters and the carters, pretending that he needed to stay close by because he has hard of hearing, as if he really understood what was being recited. It's worth pointing out that the curtain had been in use since 1577, so it most likely had passed its prime by this point at 1611 or 1615. But it did attract people from all walks of life. So Elizabethan society distinguished between theatres, which did theatre with a capital T, which were indoor spaces, perhaps showing, how should I say... um, big ticket productions perhaps or uh, which would attract very very wealthy patrons and they were tolerated within the city of london because they had wealthy influential 
audiences who were able to pay the, the high prices, so places like their Blackfriars uh, being being the most most famous one within the city. But it also had playhouses, and playhouses. The distinction between a playhouse and a theatre is that the playhouse is, is it's open to the sky. It's not an indoor space, and it's more democratic. Shows a lot more newer material, popular favourites. So perhaps it's a bit more like a modern provincial playhouse today will show Panto and a Genesis tribute act, but also it will have a touring production of Curious Incidents of the Dog in the Nighttime and The Mouse Trap, and maybe a bit of Ibsen if, if they're you know, particularly ambitious. The Playhouses have shown a big range of, of, of material, and lots of different types of Londoners would come to, to, to the performances. That's not to say they weren't quite gritty. It's not difficult to find 16th century and 17th century commentators and writers decrying how these playhouses are full of lewd persons, cut purses, frauds, thieves, harlots, everybody, all, all manner of people that they're, they're raging against are very much seen as being drawn a part and parcel of, of the playhouse experience. But we do think that from the archaeological finds that we've made around the site, that they were also attracting rich, uh, well-to-do Londoners as well, who craved the, perhaps the, the excitement and the novelty of going to a playhouse to see, see something a little bit more edgy and unusual than perhaps they would normally do in, in the city itself. The area was, I guess, probably quite similar to how it is today. Quite poor and working class, but it was also considered the countryside. So it had a lot of wealthy people who had their countryside escapes not too far. Yeah, it, it's, it's a little trip out. Um, it's, it's not too far to go. Um, as I say, the, one, the red line at Mile End probably failed because it was a little bit too far. And you know what Londoners are like when it comes to being a little bit too far to go. You know, no, I'm not going, to, not going out to zone four, mate. It's, it's, it's probably that probably didn't succeed because it was, was a little bit too far for London to go. But yes, yeah, just getting out into that beyond the city walls, very cramped, crowded, smelly, dirty conditions of, of, of the medieval city, I, I expect that probably did draw people out a bit more. So we've established how important it is. Why are we only learning about it now? It's all really part of the development boom that London's experienced over the last 10, 20 years. I think historians always had a decent idea of where the curtain was based on contemporary descriptions and based on later maps that show a, a building called Curtain Court on the, on the, on the same location. Uh, perhaps they knew where it was to within about 20 or 30 metres. And we had reasonable assumptions based on lines in Shakespeare's plays as to what it might have looked like. Remember that with no reference in Henry V. But pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Because Henry V was thought to have been premiered at the curtain, there was an assumption that it would have looked very much like the reconstructed globe down on the South Bank, that sort of polygonal circular shape there. But what we found out in the archaeology was that it was actually, it was a rectangular shape, uh, which is, has lots and lots of implications for Shakespeare scholars and Shakespeare plays. And now we think that the chorus line, the prologue, might have been added later on. But it created an awful lot of issues for the, for, for the developer. And I'm really grateful as well, I should say, to the developers, engineers and their architects who took this on, on the chin because we then had to redesign the, the development on the fly to preserve a completely differently shaped building to the one that we thought we were dealing with very early on and the space that we now have to display a rectangular theatre in instead of a, a polygonal theatre took an awful lot of very complicated engineering works and a lot of cooperation from the, uh, from the developer to be able to secure that. So 
we knew, we knew a little bit about about where it was going to be, but there were still a lot of surprises that came out of the archaeological investigations. So maybe the prologue was added later to reflect the shape of the globe, or maybe it was about the theatre, which was polygonal, and was later taken apart and rebuilt to become the globe. There's actually a print from around 1599 showing what was thought to be the Curtain Theatre. Have a look at it on social media, I'll post it. But imagine lots of pasture land with rustic houses, hills, and behind a house is what looks like a polygonal structure. Yeah, we now think that was the theatre, the one to the north. And we think the curtain is another building, which you can also see on that panorama with a jolly little flag poking out of it as well. Both buildings have flags, which was a bit of a convention in 16th century panorama drawing to suggest that there was some sort of public entertainment venue. So the rectangular extent of the curtain, which had been previously ignored when people looked at that panorama and assumed that the curtain was the taller building, we now know from the archaeology that its near neighbour, the theatre, was, was that building. And that makes sense because the theatre was the one that Shakespeare's building acting company dismantled in 1599 and carried across the river to rebuild as the globe in that round, tall, polygonal shape. So it does fit the evidence. And we've also archaeologically excavated the theatre as well, and that has actually very, very clearly a round, a round building. Um, that's another site that's going to be open to the public soon as well. So we know it's rectangular. What else did the archaeological findings reveal? So it was about 22 metres wide by about 25 metres long, so probably a bit bigger than a basketball court or maybe... Maybe two two tennis courts, perhaps next to each other, and it was built on on low brick walls, and those surrounded the main the main standing space for the audience, a gravel yard surface for the groundlings to stand on. The cheapest tickets, obviously, down in front of the stage, which was obviously at one end, and all around that yard were timber and plaster galleries of, of two or perhaps three stories, looking down onto the yard, and there would have been more comfortable, expensive wooden seats in those galleries. At one end, there was, of course, the stage. The stage would have sat on brick walls. We've got brick walls for the stage, and that was about one and a half metres above, above the yard. The yard would have been open to the sky, but we think there probably would have been a roof over the stage and obviously over the galleries around. So if you imagine, if you've ever been to the rebuilt globe, if you sort of imagine that, but in a rectangular form rather than a round, a round shape, you're on the way. And we know that the audience would have, would have entered from Curtain Road through, through the ingresses, that we, the, the threshold of, of, the, of the playhouse that survived, and probably paid their money to a, to, to a gatherer. A gatherer was, was uh, the individual who was charged with collecting the, 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 the ticket fee. Uh, we don't know whether the Curtain had an actual box office or whether, whether the gatherers sort of moved among the audience before the show. But either way, the money sort of ended up in ceramic pots with slots in them, which are called money boxes for the proprietor to smash open and collect the money from inside afterwards. Uh, that was a sort of protection against anyone skimming off a cut of the takings. And we found, found a lot of fragments of, of money boxes at this site, as we find them at the other playhouses. We know that refreshments were available. Uh, hazelnuts seem to have been very popular. We know from finds of beads and pins that um, some reasonably well-to-do people certainly seem to have been visiting the playhouse. And it's also done some we've also done some uh heather knight the archaeologist who led the excavations on the site has, has found some very very interesting designs around the backstage area and how how stage direct stage management would have worked she's identified a sort of a tunnel under the stage which i suspect probably would have led to trap doors in the stage but also would have allowed people to disappear off one wing and then scoot underneath and then appear on the other on the other wing She's found the, quite a limited backstage space. It seems to have backed onto another property. 
So we think a lot of the a lot of the uh, access to the site would have been from a gravel yard running down one side, and possibly the wooden stairways that would have taken you up to the galleries from outside along a, a, a small gravel passageway. And she's found evidence of special effects, uh, a small ceramic bird-shaped vessel that you would have filled with water, and it has a little uh, mouthpiece uh, in one end of the, of the spout uh, coming out of the other, and, and a stagehand would have blown through the spout and the air would have bubbled through and come out of the uh, come out of the mouth and sort of made a sort of burbling, trilling, bird-like sound. Well, I think we all speculate that there's a, there's a scene in a Romeo and Juliet when I think Romeo parks to the sound of a nightingale. So it's quite nice to imagine a stagehand hurriedly blowing through that bird pipe at that exact moment to get that special effect right on cue for the audience. Wilt thou be gone? It is not yet near day. It was the nightingale and not the lark that pierced the fearful hollow of thine ear. Nightly she sings on yon pomegranate tree. Believe me, love, it was the nightingale. It was the lark, the herald of the morn. No nightingale, look, love, what envious streaks do lace the severing clouds in yonder east. Night's candles are burnt out and jocund day stands tiptoe on the misty mountain tops. I must be gone and live, or stay and die. So you might be wondering how it's managed to survive all these years, especially if it's three metres below modern day ground level. And if you're like me, it didn't even cross your mind that there was a modern day ground level. Essentially, everyone who then used the site built on it a little bit more, raising the ground level, but further burying the original structures of the Curtain Playhouse. It's very firmly in the basement of a modern building and it's been preserved. So... The site would have been built on slightly slightly lower lying ground compared to the higher lying ground of Shoreditch High Street, and it would have been partially reclaimed and built up a bit. Uh, Londoners dumping their rubbish, but also d- developers reclaiming the marshy land, building it up with other materials to make a, a drier surface, a bit less damp for the occupants. So that was the first stage of, of the changes to, to the levels of, of the site. But what's what happened most significantly was after the playhouse went out of use, which was archaeologically we know happened in the second half of the 17th century and probably happened before the Civil War. But what happened then was that the building was repurposed, it was divided up into tenements, and those lasted for about another 30, 40 years or so. And at that point, coming into the early 18th century, a developer swept away most of the standing parts of the site, tamped down a lot of the material that they demolished at that point, and then brought in a load more soil and other detritus to build up even higher and get up above the uh, rather damp and marshy conditions that the natural geology of the site creates to build more high-end housing on the site. So we have a raising up and there's a very thick level of of 18th century garden soil overlying the site. On top of that, of course, we have, after that 18th century building was demolished, we have 19th century development on the site, including the the horse and groom pub, which which still stands, was built in the 1840s. That would have indeed again have been built up a little bit higher and even 20th century development as well on top of that when the site eventually became used as, uh, as offices again we've got a sequence of people depositing material on the site to create a stable building platform for them to build their new development on but fortunately in many cases the underlying brickwork of the curtain survived later development because there was this lovely big thick blanket of 18th and 19th century 
made ground, sealing it off from the modern day ground surface. And surely it's not every day you stumble across an Elizabethan playhouse that nurtured some of the greatest literary talent the English language has ever known. Oh, you'd be surprised, Lena. You'd be surprised. So we have the Curtain and, and the Theatre. These were both found, first found about 10, 15, 15 years ago. Since then, in the last two, three years, we've excavated the Red Lion at Mile End, which was the first one ever in 1567 built by a man called John Brain, who was a grocer who rather fancied himself as, a, as an impresario. And that didn't, doesn't seem to have lasted very long, possibly because it was built a little bit too far out of town to attract enough customers. But we've also since then, also in the last couple of years, found the remains of the Bull's Head Playhouse in Aldgate, which is also being developed at the moment, uh, student housing. And although the remains of that one weren't particularly well-preserved because it had, had a bright old kicking, the Boar's Head, sorry, not the Bull's Head, the ball's head, what we've done there is we've preserved the remains underneath the development and the developer has very kindly undertaken to repurpose the ground floor of the site, the new ground floor, as a new performance space for the area, which is something perhaps East, East London in this particular part of Whitechapel, there aren't very many performance spaces. This is going to be a, a genuine new cultural public benefit for the area to operate as a cafe and bar, we think, during the day and then a performance space in the evening, it's directly on top of and a coterminous with the remains of the playhouse that are preserved underneath, but it'll allow all manner of kinds of performances to go on there. You might not go and see an Elizabethan play, you might go and see some stand-up or, or a band, but what we've been able to do there is reframe and sort of reignite the performance history of the site after that 400-year gap with a new heritage-led public benefit. Mm-hmm. So alongside the Red Lion and the theatre and the curtain, we've got quite something of a, a glut of Elizabethan playhouses. And I think the one, there's one more left to find in East London, which is one of the Wapping Playhouse, which I, I'm still keen to find. But yeah, these are um, things that are coming up increasingly, increasingly because there's so much, so much development in London and it's intensive development with multiple basements and big heavy concrete piles, which means the archaeological impacts are much higher than they were in the past. And so we have to look a lot deeper and a lot more intensively at what we're dealing with. And then we tend to find really important things like this. So it's been quite good for archaeology the last few years. And this is something that I never took into consideration before, how none of this would have been possible without the redevelopment of the area, which is something that understandably gets a pretty bad rep most of the time. I think this is something that's very underexploited. I understand a lot of people feel that generic developments are being forced onto them and that they look exactly the same as, as the sorts of things that you see in, in anywhere else in, in, in the Western world or even beyond. Planners themselves also really don't like the idea of, of just generic nature of developments either. They, they like placemaking. A lot of people like the idea of celebrating local character. And it's a real quick win with archaeology because there's always some archaeology in London, always. Not, not necessarily of national importance, like an Elizabethan playhouse, but there will be locally or regionally important things that we can find. And quite often, we can draw on that heritage in a new development. It can provide design cues for the public realm. Obviously, we, we can provide interpretation and display of remains as well. But it's a really easy way to celebrate the uniqueness of a place using the archaeology. And it's a benefit that I'd really like to, uh, to encourage more developers to look at early on in their schemes, because I think it's, it's a quick win, really. So why is it important that we remember and teach this history? It's a very powerful, positive experience, I think, to, to be able to tangibly experience 
a link with the past like that, especially a link with somebody as, as, as famous as, as Shakespeare, someone who contributed so much to the language. But I think also it's got value in terms of academic learning, of course, but it's also got value in terms of economic benefits, drawing visitors to Shoreditch who perhaps might not otherwise go there otherwise. And it gives people a, a bit of help with, I think, boosting local, local identity, local character, celebrating the specialness of a place. I think that that's something we really should use archaeology to value a lot more because it can really feed in so well. And places like London, which are always described as a group of villages that all sort of grew together, they have all got individual characters, they have all got individual unique histories. And drawing those out, I think, has, has a lot of benefits in terms of lived experience of the people who live and, and visit and work in those parts of London. So it's not just archaeologists trying to dig things up and collect them and, and put them in an archive and, and then go on and, and uh, forget about them. I think there are a lot of very tangible benefits that we can get out of archaeology. So maybe next time you're out in Shoreditch, getting a coffee, doing some shopping or going for some drinks, take a second to appreciate that this was Shakespeare's stomping ground. The site isn't open to the public yet, but the Horse and Groom pub is there, so you could go and have a wander around there. And if you want any more information, make sure to head to the Museum of London's archaeology site who were responsible for the excavation and no doubt will be showing when people can go and view it, visit it, and maybe you could eventually go see a performance there. How cool would that be? To see prints of how the Curtain Playhouse may have looked and the recent excavation of it, head to the East London History Show Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. It makes such a difference, especially to new shows like this. So I'd be super grateful for any help. And of course, a special thank you to my actors for this episode, Lewis McKenzie, Adam Hashim, Nell Barlow and Dom Luck. Next time, we're at the oldest house in Hackney, Sutton House, home to Henry VIII's courtiers, the East India Company and even Queen Elizabeth I's advisors. Ralph Sadler, the original owner, he came back to power really during Elizabeth I's reign because she brought the country back to Protestantism again after a period of Catholicism. And I read recently that he advised Elizabeth I not to get married when she was considering getting married. And if that's true, that's so significant because the whole history of the country from that point would have been different if she'd married and had children. So he was obviously really trusted and his advice was adhered to, including by monarchs. And he only bloody lived in Hackney. See you next time.